Welcome to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson, joined as always by Jason Daphnis, my co-host. Hey, Jason. Hey, Matt. Uh, you know, today was my last day at my job. Congratulations. Um, it is a beautiful day to be talking. Yeah, thank you. It is a beautiful day to be talking about incredible music with you and a wonderful guest. And Donald Rumsfeld is dead. So, wonderful day all around. <laughs> yeah, yeah you're, everything's coming up, Jason. Um, but you mentioned our guest. We're super excited. Uh, also, thanks to a, a guest from a few episodes ago, Lizzie uh, Killian, who helped set this up. Um, but we are very pleased to welcome to the show Mike Park. Uh, you may know Mike as uh, he was in Skank and Pickle, the uh, you know very legendary uh, third wave. I think it's third yeah. wave ska band. I get I get my waves confused. Um, <laughs> and then also uh, the longtime uh, owner and proprietor of Asian Man Records, uh, and they've put out. Uh, they were formerly Dill Records. They put out Skank and Pickle, the early Lesson Jake stuff, and then as Asian Man uh, bands like Lawrence Arms, Joyce Manor. Uh, reissues for bands like Screeching Weasel, Smoking Popes, Riverdales, and things like that. So, a uh, long, long running um, underground uh, punk, ska, underground music label. Um, so, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Asian Man. Um, and, you know, running an independent record label was always challenging, no matter what era it was. And, Certainly, you know, obviously in the last 10 or 15 years, the complete, you know, sea change of, of the record industry to like the streaming economy and the resurgence of vinyl and all these other, you know, huge, huge kind of structural changes. Um, I mean, I kind of just want to ask you like how you've done it. Like how have you managed to, to continue to, you know, operate the label and, and, and carry on through all the, all the different eras? Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure how I've, I've been able to survive, to be honest. I think it's a lot of luck involved, but also I had a lot of, I guess, foresight that things were changing. I and, and we never were a label that spent a lot of money. We weren't one to do like showcases at South by Southwest or CMJ or Midum. It was just a very stripped down staff run out of my parents' garage, which is still the case today, but with no staff. It's just me. So... <laughs> it's, it's very different than the lean operation, yeah, different than bigger labels. So we, we have a lower overhead and I've just always been kind of content with doing it myself and the bands I work with. I'm just very upfront with them, letting them know these are my limitations. If you're okay with that, let's do something. And I've been able to have some great relationships with the band in addition to just as a, aside from a business, just some of my best friends are, the bands that I've worked with over the years. Yeah. And obviously you're still, you know, putting up stuff in 2021. I know uh, I listened today to the, your, your latest band, the Bruce Lee band, and you have a new EP out here in 2021 division in the heartland, which uh, I listened today. I really enjoyed it. So um, obviously you're still both as a you know creative artist and a label owner, you're still kind of thriving in 2021. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, last couple, you know, year and a half thriving has been a relative term. For everybody. Sure. Um, but uh, I also wanted to talk to you, um, you know, obviously, you know, Skanking Pickles, you know, very, you know, one of the well-known bands, I think, of the the kind of late 80s, early 90s, you know, Skywave. And 
Um, ska is funny to me. I, I almost sort of think about it a little bit like heavy metal where, you know, sometimes it's, it's really up and it's, it's very fashionable. Sometimes it's kind of very unfashionable and almost like, you know, maybe a punchline in certain respects. Mm-hmm. But there always seems to be this sort of core audience, a loyal kind of core that, that sticks with it through the, the ups and downs and things like that. And so I guess how, how in this year, 2021, like what, what's sort of the state of, of ska to you and, and where's the music at for you? Well, the music has always been constant, at least in my heart. I've always enjoyed it, enjoyed it uh, since I was a teenager. Uh, the only difference in 2021, it's really uh, gotten a lot of press. Uh, everyone from Pitchfork to the Washington Post um, to Rolling Stone have written about ska. It's it's this. I feel like there's a big wave of new bands that are doing great things and it's exciting. I, I like just being kind of an elder statesman, kind of like sitting back and reading it and enjoying listening to a lot of new bands and um, hearing, hearing their take on sky. It's, it's cool. Yeah. What are some of the, uh, the younger kind of new sky artists that sort of excite you? My favorite band is this band from Philly called cat bite. And it's like a, it's like a power pop mod ska band um i love their i love their music it just has this such a unique sound um in addition to cat bite there's this artist named jeremy hunter goes by jer for his for their solo work and also runs a a project called the Scottoon network and this individual like single-handedly i feel has really push ska to another level on an underground um kind of a level just uh honestly this one person i feel should be credited for really making waves in ska and uh it's it's cool to see that's great and so there seems to be a lot of like energy and like younger kids coming to shows and things like that well it's hard to say with shows because there have well been yeah i mean shows, but <laughs> I feel Before. like, yes, I feel like there will be when it does happen, it's going to be, I'm excited to see how, how these newer bands uh, do when they go out on their own headline tours, uh, or maybe they'll be packaging tours together. There's a label called Bad Time Records um, that's really on the forefront of these newer ska bands, and I'm excited to see what they have in store Another kind of part of your your career, and I think lineage is sort of uh, I wanted to talk about too, which is unfortunately still also very relevant in a in a kind of a bad way. But um, you know, I think a, a big part of your career has also been you know I know you were I think you guys even did like anti racist action things back in the day, and um, you know, just talking about racism and political issues, and obviously there's been a increased um, you know. Uh, attention to that, you know, particularly in recent months, like anti-Asian American hate and things like that. Where, I guess, how do you feel about, you know, how punk and, and ska and, and, and political music exists in these times? Well, obviously, I wish it didn't have to exist. But for for me personally, music has really been an, is an outlet, has been an outlet, continues to be an outlet for me to get things off my chest, whether it be... Um, putting down words on paper and turning it into music. And it, I, I find it almost therapeutic, at least for myself, where I can express my feelings through music of, of how 
our country or my community or my past, basically anything. But if we were talking specifically like the state of America in 2021 with such division, um, with the the continued rise of anti-AAPI hate, it's very disturbing. And I'm, I, I always feel like it, the, the punk scene, not just the punk scene, but just the human the human race, anyone who has a heart, who's, mm-hmm. who's been able to express their feelings, who has some kind of a influence, whether you are a hip hop artist or an actor or a writer, um, it's time to speak up about this kind of stuff. And I've, I've always felt music is the most powerful ingredient to share ideas, whether it's to, um, increase someone's cardio whether you're, if you're working out or to bring you joy or sadness just music has pushes all the right buttons or the wrong buttons i guess in certain cases but um it, it continues to be a healing ingredient for me absolutely well said um we're gonna move on to your pick but i, I do want to <laughs> ask you about i'd imagine this is one of the more most obscure asian man bands Certainly, probably the most one of the most atypical. Uh, but you know, I, uh, my background's in, in video game journalism, and there was a band I, I really loved because I had a couple of guys that worked in the industry. Uh, one is a journalist, and one in, in publishing. EE uh, e. mm. with uh, with Sue Young Park, yes, uh, and and the guys I knew were Che Chow and Pete Nguyen. But uh, I always thought that was a, they were a really cool band. I saw them when they came through Minneapolis because we knew them. We'd always kind of go and see them and things like that. And I always thought that that, that was a really good sleeper uh band on your label yeah it's uh you know the problem with being in a successful ska band is you're always kind of uh holding that tag of like the ska label even though i feel like our our discography is very diverse and e was a record well we put out a couple records some great music but it's just not what our fan base was looking for they weren't looking for like the history of Seam and what Sue Young Park was doing, and yeah, I mean he's uh, really talented and, and just kind of very cool, complex, but yet kind of dreamy. I just I, I really was a huge fan of the times I saw them, and I, I love those albums. Um, but let's move on to your pick, which is also a um, I didn't say them at the beginning, but probably you know definitely one of the most successful uh, bands that came out of Asian Man Records, and then on to other uh, labels in the future. Um, and your pick is uh, God Damn It by Alkaline Trio. Um, people have probably heard of them. I think they were definitely, you know, about as successful as a punk band could get, maybe outside of the Green Day or like Blink-182 level. But sure. um, they were, they were you know, a, a very popular band, especially in the early, mid-2000s. Um, so obviously, you know, you put this record out, you believed in it, and I, I'm curious how this the relationship between you and um, Elkline Trio kind of happened. Where did you hear about them, and, and what kind of um, grabbed you about this band? Sure. So the bass player for Alkaline Trio, his name is Dan Andriano. He was in a band called Slapstick prior to to Alkaline Trio. So we had worked with Slapstick. They had broken up. He started a new band called Tuesday, and we worked with them. And then I think they were at that age where some of the members were like, well, I think I'm going to go back to school. And then Matt from Alkaline Trio called Dan and said, do you want to join? So he was in the band. And from that point, I was such good friends with Dan. He he reached out to me and said, hey, would you 
be interested in putting out a seven inch? And I said, of course. And it was as simple as that because that, that family, like community vibe of Asian man, it really runs deep where I would say yes to almost every artist I'd worked with. If they had started a new band without even hearing the band, I would just say, yeah, of course. I've kind of stopped that because I've put out some clunkers by, <laughs> by doing that. But um, yeah, I was I was ready to, to work with them right from the beginning. This is kind of a very inside punk baseball thing, but there was like about 30 seconds there when you said slapstick. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of slap shot. Yeah, of course. Like, and I was like, whoa, that, which for those that don't know, slap shots, a a Boston Boston hardcore hardcore band. It's like (laughs) about as macho, violent, like super, like, you know, anyway. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But uh, I was like, wow, that is a, a change. Um, so well, let's, let's hear some of a uh, God damn it by alkaline trio. Let's, let's hear cringe. I mean, this is the first song and I think this is a, a really good example of like their style. I'd say one thing that I, I really noticed about this band, um, who's I, I was, you know, I, I knew them somewhat, but I wasn't like super familiar with their catalog. But uh, man, the, the, this rhythm section is really—they're just breakneck, you know, yeah. like on drums and bass, like really, you know, quick and tight, and you know, just really impressive. Uh, I think rhythm section on the whole. That original drummer, he. The drummer they've had for the last 20 years, Derek Grant, is one of the greatest drummers I've ever seen. But this original drummer, they've never been able to match that energy that I saw in the early days. I mean, I love them now, and I love the records they put out after Asian Man, but there's still something so magical about this three-piece. Like, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes I also notice that, uh, um, you know, they're definitely in the, in the the 90s, you know, pop punk vein, but every once in a while they do these kind of weird changes, and at that point, you know, I was listening to a lot of stuff like Jawbox and like, you know, Fugazi, mm-hmm. and, you know, Unwound and bands like that, and they have like weird little touches, like kind of these kind of odd, like kind of stops and starts and stuff that uh, kind of, you know, I think makes them stand out a little bit um, in that genre. Yeah, I think they were definitely influenced by... Jawbox, Jawbreaker, Promise Ring, that like late '90s, early 2000s. They they definitely got lumped in that e- Midwest emo scene, which it's such a vague term, but uh, yeah, they were one of the I guess pioneers of that. Yeah, no, they, I mean they they definitely kind of meld like the the pop punk thing and that stuff in a very cool way. Um, See where else should we go? These songs are also short. We're used to having like longer songs where we talk about different parts, and these <laughs> I think t- this episode is just going to be like they're going to be over before they start. Um, <laughs> uh, one that uh, really stuck out to me, just in terms of you know this band is very anthemic, and uh, San Francisco I think has just an, uh, an amazing like very kind of like soaring uh, soaring chorus. 
um, Mike, I'm curious what, you know, uh, obviously they have, they put out other albums, you know, on Asian man. And, and, uh, after that, what, 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 what is it about goddamn it in particular that, um, means a lot to you? I think because it's their first full length and I was able to watch it grow organically from the beginning. Um, I was so in love with this record when it came out. I, I would say a good year at least or more. The first thing I did when I walked into the Asian man garage was push play in the CD player. Goddamn it was there. And I would just listen to the record every day. The first thing I did when I got to work. And it just, uh, it's such a good record. This only cost a thousand dollars. It was a thousand dollars to record and master. Um, and really Dan, the bass player was actually going on tour with his other band Tuesday. So he sang his backup vocals before Matt even sang his lead vocal. And it's a, if anyone who's recorded music, you just don't do that. You don't match up backup vocals to your lead. So it's uh, it's interesting to listen to it, listen back to it and go, that's crazy that they did wow. that. That's really, um, that $1,000 really kind of shocks me. Because I, I, I was, one of my little talking points, I was going to say that I felt like it sounded, um, you know, just really polished. I mean, it was obviously an indie album, but, you know, it doesn't, to me, it has a really big kind of like very pro kind of sound, you know, not knowing like the story behind this recording. I just think this is an organic sound. I, I feel like with all the later records, when they started going into big studios, I mean, a lot of the songs I still love, but it's just I don't like over polished music in general. I Anything that is like just ho- overly auto tune or quantized drums, it just it sounds so artificial. I want to hear a band play without being uh, kind of manufactured in the studio. And this is as honest as it gets, this recording. Yeah, and you said uh, Dan Andriano's in Tuesday? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, so, yeah, he was in a couple. <laughs> Tuesday was pretty big on their own as well. Wow. You might be thinking of Thursday as the bigger band. I am thinking of Thursday. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, these guys were in Slapshot and, <laughs> and Thursday. Thursday. Sorry, I'm, I'm my god, what's wrong with my brain? But yeah, I think this chorus is just it's just such a kind of great classic like sing along chorus. Yeah, this record is, I think this is their greatest record, and I've been asked so many times on in interviews what's your favorite release, which is always hard to to say. It's like saying who's your favorite child, but. Without a doubt, this is my favorite release I've ever put out of over 370 releases. Wow. Obviously, this was a relationship-based thing at first, but was there like a moment when either you heard some you know, demos or you went to see them at a club and they were doing the material that would be this album that you were just kind of like, wow, like we're, this is going to be something? Well, I I never have I never know <laughs> I, I, like the music business is strange. I, I never know if a band will do well. I mean, most of the times when I think, oh man, this is going to be huge, it usually isn't huge. Uh, I had gotten to see them. I saw them at a house show in Chicago in '98 before we had released anything with them, and at the show, I knew 
mean, uh, again, I, I didn't know like, oh, they're going to be huge. I just knew I really liked them. I thought this was going to be a cool release. And then when they sent me the demos, it wasn't the demos. It was the four tracks that would be the four-year lungs only seven-inch. It was just, the music was great. It was um, this song called Cooking Wine was the one that really stood out to me. And it, strangely, it sounded to me like, they might be giants. He sounded like the, the opening chorus was like, oh, wow. they might be giants. And some of the old adverts I would write, like a mix between they might be giants meets jawbreaker, which <laughs> makes no sense now. But just because of that opening verse of cooking wine, it just reminded me of they might be giants. That's funny. Um, I like, you know, we, I played a couple here. What are, uh, you know, just some of your favorites from the album? What, you know, what would you like to listen to? I think my favorite song on this is Trouble Breathing. It's just this uh, lyrically and musically. Again, when we're talking about my favorite record I've ever put out, I love all the songs. But Trouble Breathing I seem, seems to be the one I always go back to when I just like want to hear a song that I love. So the drummer, he's an open-handed drummer, which is very, I feel like has this very unique sound in his drumming. And when... Oh, so he's doing like, if he's right-handed, he's doing the hi-hat with his left hand? Yeah. Okay. And they they kicked out the original drummer. I won't get into why, but when they found his replacement, they, they picked another great drummer, this guy named Mike Fellamley who was the drummer for the Smoking Popes. Actually, is still the drummer for the Smoking Popes, but he was also open-handed drummer for, for one album. You told me that yeah, there's a, there's a lot of cool cool drumming on this record. And also, just in general, I think um, Dan Andriano is a really great um, just a melodic bass player. Oh, Especially in, in some of these... In, in some of the, like... Like at the beginning of this song, I like when they do those kind of things. There maybe like a little bit more of those bands, like you know, Jawbreaker. You're talking about where it's like sort of mellower and there's kind of this like cool interplay between the the guitar and, and the bass. Yeah, Dan is not the original bass player for this band. There was there was another bass player before Dan, but Matt would always tell me that the band really didn't start to take off until Dan joined, where they were. He felt they really were able to come into their own sound-wise. But again, you could hear Dan doing the background vocals before Matt. It's just so strange to hear. Yeah, I guess I, never, I didn't notice that now until you pointed that out. That's funny. I guess it sounds natural when they do it, but... And this is before auto-tune, so... You can. I like imperfections. I can hear all the pitchiness. Uh, it just sounds real to me. I. I guess I'm a very big opponent of autotune. I. I don't like it at all. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends to me. You know, some people kind of use it more as like an effect, almost like a, exactly. If it's an effect, vo- like. Like a talk box, and like those old 70s talk boxes kind of thing. Then it's sort of like a, its own thing. But I know what you mean. Like I was listening to... What was I listening to a couple years ago? 
oh, I was I just decided to check out a new Morrissey record for some reason, uh-huh. and I was like, oh my lord, this is auto tuned to death. That's too bad like, because a lot of that Smith stuff there is there is a lot of pitchiness that I love. Oh yeah, but you know, I, I just I'm not entirely sure what shape his voice is anymore. But it, you can just it has that when like a, a more of a live band does it, it has this really kind of weird. Uh, unreal kind of effect which I know what you're talking about yeah I I, I can, when I hear it and I know the band is just trying to like make it sound perfect it's just like hmm why especially if yeah. I know if I know the musician or the singer is a good vocalist and can hit the notes I, I just don't understand I never understood why yeah I mean I think you know, it's not necessarily my music, but some of the like newer, you know, a lot of the newer rap stuff uses it. But I almost get the sense that they're like, it's almost kind of a punk thing. Like they didn't quite know how to use it right, or they're just sort of using it as this weird, like manipulated voice kind of sound. You know, like you obviously know it's auto tune when you hear it, right? It's right. like it's a very like stated effect. Um, what else should we go to? Um, oh, uh, Southern Rock. I really like that one. This was another one I really, I really enjoyed. See, like, these type of parts on this, these records, like, I really like how they kind of meld the guitar and bass lines together. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... Listening to the song... Anytime I listen to these songs, I still am like, ah, oh, so good. So I'm just kind of, like, sitting back going, ah, what a great song. Oh, one thing I wanted to ask you... um, I mean, obviously they went on to great success, but was this a pretty successful record on an independent level for you? Yes, very much so. Uh, The growth was really quick. And after this record, they were actually offered a major label deal. If memory stands correct, I believe it was MCA at the time. And they turned them down. They, They wanted to put the next record out with me, and I was really like... I guess I was honored but at the same time i was confused i'm like why why would you give up <laughs> this opportunity there they said ah eh, i don't think we're ready i'm like okay great i mean it was great for me so that next album would be uh an album called maybe i'll catch fire and my goodness that probably helped keep me afloat to be honest was that sort of how it was you had to sort of have <clears throat> maybe one out of five or whatever hit to kind of float the other ones maybe not even that much maybe one out of ten <laughs> there was I, there was a time I would stop trying to think of the years maybe like the um, early 2000s as I got older I kind of lost touch I kept putting out bands that were my age as I was kidding my 30s and kind of just continually watching a decrease in sales for every release we put out and it just finally dawned on me it's like kids don't want to buy music from old people and so (laughs) i had to dive back into going to these diy shows these house shows and going to gilman street and berkeley and uh it took me it took me a few years to realize that but once i did i was i call it kind of the second wave of asian man where we were working with bands like Lemuria, Bomb the Music Industry, Andrew Jackson Jihad, and that really was a breath of fresh air for me because for for a 
a few years there, everything I was putting out just was not doing well. Oh, okay. What time period is this? Oh, when did we put out? Let me see a quick Google search. I'm going to guess like 2004-ish. Okay. <laughs> but I'm not 100% sure. Let me, so let me see if I can... Uh, <laughs> is this your label? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd say like maybe the mid-2000s when I was able to like really figure figure that out and come into this new uh this new rebirth i guess 2008 is when lemuria's get better came out so i would say yeah 2008 okay um uh, i want to make sure we you know we move on here any another song you want to check out or that's particularly meaningful to you yeah i like sorry about that because it's an acoustic tune uh it's the closing track of the album and it's just it's a pretty song. <laughs> so one thing about music, I can't retain lyrics. So even though I've heard a song a million times, I just don't know the lyrics. So I'm always jealous of people at concerts singing along. I just can't remember the lyrics. And I remember... I played a show with Matt, a solo show with him, and he asked me to come up because he knows how much I love this record. And he said, you know, will you sing Sorry About That with me? And I'm like, I'll try. I couldn't, I just couldn't get the lyrics right. It's, it's such a strange thing. <laughs> I've, I've listened to the song, I mean, probably 10,000 times. I just don't know the word. But I think it's on YouTube somewhere of me singing with him and it's just singing the wrong words and him trying to correct me. <laughs> you you shouldn't have said that. I'm going to put that in the show notes. <laughs> Without wearing a stitch of clothing, we were both deeply in disguise. And, and maybe I just set aside the fact that you were broken. There's something about just guitar and vocal that's so powerful. Yeah. And for a record that's pretty breakneck on the whole, you know, I mean, it's. Yeah. There's a lot of real quick, you know, quick, endemic kind of songs, I guess. Sure. Though I have to say, I was I was texting with Jason. I realized right before the show, I, I'd been listening to, like, I think you guys did sort of an expanded reissue. Yeah, that had like four songs tacked onto the end. Right, but you know, with Spotify, you never really know if it's like uh, the. Uh, Since we kissed. So I guess I was thinking they were all the album, and I was like, "Wow, that's a pretty long album." But then I looked it up, and I was like, "Okay, that makes a lot more sense that this is the last song because the other ones and the other ones sounded a little bit different too." So I was confused. Yeah, that was the. That we'd Gosh, I can't remember now. God, I'm terrible. I think there was a song like Week Week, 97. <laughs> okay, so that's... Their- and there was a different version of Nose Over Tail. Yes. Those are from the the original bass player. So I can't even remember his name. Yes, Week Week, Nose Over Tail, 97, Sundial. Maybe. 
They were actually good, really good songs. Um, they did sound a little demo-y when I heard them, like, knowing they were demos, they sounded a little bit rougher. For sure. They had um, put out a 7-inch on an old Chicago label called Johan's Face. Oh, wow, i never heard of that label. With these, with these uh, songs on it, which are, if you have that 7-inch, it's worth a lot of money. <laughs> Speaking of, I mentioned, uh, was Nose Over Tales on the proper too, right? Mm-hmm. But that, that one, I really, I really enjoy that song. Yeah, here's where they kind of like some of that weird kind of like strumming stuff is kind of. I like how they kind of mix up the formula a little bit with some kind of cool, just little different instrumental touches. I think that a lot of bands in this genre don't do. Yeah, he does a lot of octave uh, strumming. In in the history of Alkaline Trio, he does these like slides of. How am I trying to explain it? Like what? When he's playing a melody, he'll go do 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 do. It's just octave chords playing the melody. I think it's kind of a unique, his unique style. Jason, sorry, one second. I think we've got a uh, a household dog on the mic. Yeah. Honestly, I'm tempted to leave him in. Yeah, leave him what? in. Oscar? <laughs> yeah. He was just got his chew bone, and I could tell he was just going to be gnawing on it right by me the whole time. <laughs> oh. Take it away. Had to confiscate it. He deserves it. <laughs> He's cute, though. Mike, did these guys end up on Epitaph, or what? So they went from Asian Man to Vagrant. <laughs> okay, to yeah. They were on a major for one record. Gosh, what was the... Was it Epic, maybe? Can't keep track. Then they got signed to another label, which was awesome because they got like a big advance, and then the label folded, so they just got to keep the money. And that was just free money. It was like six... That's perfect, It was yeah. over six figures, and then Epitaph came, yeah. They've been there since. I feel like if you just exist as a popular punk band for so long you end up on epitaph eventually <laughs> you know what i mean like it's just kind of how it goes you might be you may very well be correct on that. <laughs> you know what i mean like i feel like they kind of you know just grab them eventually that or fat record yeah 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 um I mean, we hit. Uh, what else did I want to hear? Oh, message from Kathleen. I like anything. Would any ones we haven't played, Mike? That you want to get here before we? No, I think wrap up. I think we've had we had a good little little taste cool. of this wonderful record. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, let's wrap it up real quick, Jason. Message from Kathleen. I really just wanted to get through the chorus. I really like the chorus of this song a lot. Um, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, you can see why they went on. You know, to to bigger things. I mean, I think they were. I don't know, just very polished as a band, I think, just in terms of being players and songwriters and, and, and everything. It just seems like they really had that organic kind of sense of, like, putting their music together. Oh, I, yeah, agree. They had the magic touch. So with this song, Dan sings lead. Uh, 
they're one of those bands that have two lead singers, even though Matt is considered the main lead singer. The early records, especially this record, Dan only has two leads on this record, so it's very small sampling, but uh, the the latter records, he has an increased role in each 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 album's content. I met Kathleen at a wedding. I went to a wedding in the, the Pacific Northwest for the guitarist of the Lawrence Arms, and uh, the singer said, that girl over there, that's Kathleen from the song Message from Kathleen. Oh, wow. So I took a photo of us two, and I sent it to Dan. And I said, I'm with Kathleen. That's crazy. Yeah, they have a lot of interplay on their vocals over the course of the album that I think is kind of another nice part of their style. Um, yeah, it seems like on the newer records, Dan usually has like 40% now of the lead vocal duties. And, and they're still active? They're putting out records still? Yeah. they. Uh, I think their last album came out in 2018. They put out a single, I think, in 2019, or maybe it was two two new songs. And I know that they are working on working on working on putting out a new record. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like there's got to be just you know across the whole music industry, there's got to be just like a ton of records that are sort of like in the can that have just been sitting there or kind of half done, and then you know, COVID just sort of put everything in a kind of stasis for a while. Exactly. But bands that have that were able to quarantine together, and I know there were a handful of them, they were able to write so much music because of the quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Alright, well that was God Damn It by Alkaline Trio. So thanks for that pick, Mike. It was a lot of fun. Um, really enjoyed it. And, uh, obviously, you know, they went on to great success and, uh, you know, pretty high profile punk band still today. Um, so we'll switch gears to my pick, uh, which is, it's kind of weird. I didn't, I, I never thought about this as one of my favorite records, but I think like the last couple of weeks I, I realized it really is. Um, this is a band called Exploding Hearts. The album is Guitar Romantic. It's from 2003. Um, and I guess before we get into it, there's kind of a sort of a, you know, sad tale uh, with this band, unfortunately, um, which is this is their one and only album. Uh, they were formed in Portland and uh, Oregon in uh, 2001. Uh, this album came out in 2003. Um, and basically, 
I think they'd, they'd been down to San Francisco to do some shows and, and some other things. And, uh, you know, this album, I think, really did really well in the underground level. People really loved it. And so, you know, there was some uh, major, you know, or larger label interest. In fact, I think I, I just read today that right before, uh, right before, well, what happened is their van, they were in Eugene, Oregon, and their van rolled over, killing Adam Cox, Matt Fitzgerald, and Jeremy Gage, three of the four members of the band. So, uh, it was super, you know, tragic. They were all, I mean, I think they were all under like 24 years old, um, which is another amazing thing about how great the songwriting to me on this album is. Um, there is a singles count called Shattered that has a few B-sides that weren't on albums and stuff like that, but there just, you know, wasn't much. Um, and I think that uh, I actually read that they had just met in San Francisco before they tried to drive back to Oregon. They had met with a label that, well, they, re- they met I with bet, the I bet. Records. Yeah, I was gonna say I bet I bet Matt has thoughts and feelings about that label. Um and uh so they were basically the label Green Day kind of came up on. But uh anyway, it was you know, it's really a sad a sad story and um but you know, they left us with to me is just like a, a, a pretty perfect, you know, kind of power pop punk record, you know, obviously influenced by, you know, the British bands like the only ones or undertones, Buzzcocks, you know, you know, stuff like, you know, American bands like the Nerves or you know, Paul Collins or Ted Leo, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, Mike, were you familiar with this record? Yeah. I was, I was on the same, I was distributed by the same, uh, company that dirt nap records was. So, Oh wow. Okay. I I had this CD and, um, you know, I was very familiar with that scene in the Pacific Northwest with like the briefs and, um, the epoxies. So I was, uh, and you know the, the 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 club they played at, the last club they played at, at the bottom of the hill is my my favorite club in the world. So very very familiar with the sad story and and with their music. Yeah, well let's uh, let's hear it. I mean, and I think you know everyone will hear it, but um you know it's it's very kind of just classic pop songwriting, even in, done in kind of a rough kind of like lower fi you know punk style. But I mean, truly like they had. I think for how young they were, just really tremendous songwriting chops to me. And I, I was always kind of blown away when I first heard it. Just, I don't know. It was one of those albums I heard for the first time. I'm like, wow, this is just like great songs. And uh, I don't know. I guess the first song is Modern Kicks. It's a, you know, one of their best regarded songs, I think. So let's listen to it. Yeah, I mean, I love power pop. Mid-tempo power pop. My favorite music. What was uh, some of your formative power pop, Mike? What would you call, like, the ones that got you into it? The ones that really were the swing for you? Super Chunk. But even like I, I would even consider like all the British stuff like, like you were saying like the Buzzcocks, you know? That mid tempo just like the uh, toy dolls, the Buzzcocks. I don't think anyone would consider them power pop, but mid tempo. Yeah. Mid tempo. Or like the undertones. Yeah, yeah, were yeah. Definitely a great one. Only ones, you know, uh, Reckless Eric. Um, there's just a ton of that stuff. Even maybe stuff like Nick Lowe, who really was much less punk. Yeah, I, 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 I even like the Paul, Paul Collins beat. 
stuff is so good. Yeah. This is fun. I, I like... I shouldn't say I like... I continue to like going to concerts that have this tempo. It's such a good head-bobbing music to go to. Does that make sense? Am I oh, yeah, totally. Sense? Yep. Like, I love going to the Muffs. The Muffs were one of my favorite bands because the tempo was just so good for head-banging. Like, not, not the heavy <laughs> yeah. metal head-banging, but just... Yeah, yeah. Just love that mid-tempo beat where I could just bob along the whole time and just have a good time. Yeah. And the other thing I like with this stuff is, like, like guitar solos that are, like, really written guitar solos, you know, where it's, like, it's almost like a, a, another melody in itself, you know? It's not, like, just sort of, like, you know, shredding stuff. It's, like, you can tell they kind of, like, you could sing out the guitar solo kind of. Yeah, it's almost um, like a, you know, I feel like, obviously, with the rock and roll influence, I can hear, like, the Chuck Berry influence in the guitar work. Like, right there, you can hear the Chuck yeah, Berry. Totally. But yeah, the but, age yeah. the age is pretty incredible because I bet they're I bet the fan base they're playing for when they were big in that underground scene, I bet they were playing for all the older punk. Like that that um, they were and I feel like they were playing a lot of the the punk twenty one and over clubs too. That really appreciates the sound. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um geez, let's what's another good one? I mean these are all these songs are also catchy. I mean, yeah, I'm it's a hard pretender. To go wrong. The next song's really hard. It's hard to go wrong with this album. I just feel like it's such a strong front to back record to me, and like every song is catchy. Every song has a memorable chorus. Yeah, I think um, I'm a pretender might be my favorite track. also like it because it's sloppy too i love that it's sloppy yeah it's really it and, and the sound quality is that kind of almost like in the red kind of like slightly roughed up thing you know that kind of because super poppy but like there's some there's a real like you said it's super raw like the guitar tones raw the recording's kind of raw and i think it prevents it from being like too slick i don't like slick <laughs> that's i think but, that's the the main thing about this record that will stand the test of time is because it's so honest. It's like, man, there is no auto-tune. It's just everything you hear is exactly... I never saw them live, but I'm guessing this is exactly what they sounded like live. Yeah. You know, Mike, we had a previous guest on our show, a former coworker of Matt's that I think you would get along with based on this p- opinion alone. Okay. I'm thinking of Matt Cotto, mm-hmm. Matt, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. who has very similar feelings about the production of music being like very important to whether or not it's like yeah. re-listenable, I guess. <clears throat> yeah. And Cotto was kind of a mod for a long time, you know. He had like the scooter mm-hmm. and everything and like, you know, DJ'd like Britpop, Northern Soul kind of stuff, you know what I mean? So he was into that stuff. The Who, like early yeah. Who, mid-period Who and stuff. Well, the jam, too. I would even throw the jam in there as like a power, mm. power pop. Totally. Masterpiece of a oh, band. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is just, it's like, uh, yeah, I just get such a kick out of this record because it just, I don't know, it, it just, to come out, this was, the style of music was like the farthest thing from hip at that time. Especially you know for I mean? their age. That's for their like, age and also from, you know, from, from Portland that has very kind of like, you know, more of a weirder kind of vibe sometimes with their music scene. You know, it just, it was just like, where did this... I mean, honestly, if you would have gave, given me this and be like, oh, yeah, this was like this, you know, they were like this cool band from Chicago and they did like one record in 1978. Yeah, yeah. just didn't really go anywhere. I would have been like, oh, wow, this is a great reissue. No. This is like, why weren't these guys big back then, you know? 100%. I was thinking the same thing earlier today. I, mean, I even like could see them like kind of a weird like comparison, but like even like the Bay City Rollers, that kind of style. Yeah. I don't know totally. why, but I could hear like, you know, it's totally... I could see them touring like the Bay City Rollers with, <laughs> yeah, no, totally, totally, exploding hearts playing at yeah. the whatever amphitheater. Absolutely. Um, I, let's hear. I think this is probably my favorite song. I, I it kind of changes, but I think "Rumors in Town" might be my favorite off this album. Though it's it's a pretty close call. Yeah, I think these guys could have fit in. Like, you know what would have been kind of funny too? Like, I think they could even done well. Like, opening for like Cheap Trick. Oh yeah, one hundred. Well, cheap, cheap trick from 1970s. Not cheap trick in. Let's say if they toured with cheap trick in 2003, ah, they would have gone fine too. But oh, uh, you know, I, I saw cheap trick around that time, and they they really like they were great. Honestly, oh sure, I'm sure they're still good in 2021. It's just yeah. something about playing for a young. A youthful audience. I, I mean, going to see Cheap Trick in probably 1977 mm-hmm. was amazing. <laughs> Just yeah. that youthful energy. So when when a band like a Cheap Trick goes out on tour in 2021, it's just... Oh, yeah, yeah, It's, yeah. it's uh, different. Re- it's not reunion like live, time at, for live at Voodoo Con where like, it's a million Japanese girls just going insane. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I just, oh, man, this is such a great song. <laughs> Well, like you said, there isn't a bad song on this record. It's so it it's just filled with so many pop hooks, and they're really keyed in on the 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 ooze, the background vocals, and the the melodic guitar lead. Um, it's just so rock and roll with with such a pop pop flair and just hooks. Really Here's a question, Mike. What does this sound like? An Asian Man Records release? Like, would you release this music? One hundred percent, because we've put out so many weird records that don't make sense. <laughs> this would have fit right in. We have a band, a, a garagier band called the Adam Age. That's just a great band. They're more like a like Hot Snakes type of uh, oh, okay. garage yeah, yeah. band, but they just they're so good, and I've just never able to get them to another level because. Again, I think our clientele is just not writ, doesn't understand what we're doing. Right, yeah. But I'll continue fighting the, those uh, stereotypes and put out, I wish. put out diverse music. Boy, this is a lot. How about, oh, Sleeping Aids and Razor Blades. We should listen. That one's a, a great one off this as well. Um, 
Jason, I'm curious for you just because, you know, I think you probably weren't like super familiar with a lot of the references that we've been talking about. Um, nope. Nope. I'm writing them down just because I'm going to have to listen to Undertones. But, but yeah, Sounds I mean, like just, a great band. Like, do you, did you enjoy this or was it like. Oh, yeah. No, I, mean, I, I love like this. it's pretty enjoyable for anybody. Not to digress, but like, I love this in the same way that like, I guess people of my generation kind of like bands like The Strokes. Where it's like, oh, sort of almost an older sound by a younger generation, uh, and they're sort of owning it. They're sort of moving it forward. They're sort of carrying the torch. That's how I really approached this album and how I really came to love it. Of course, it's, you know, at a baseline, very just catchy, but coming to appreciate the production and sort of the spirit behind it was more of a, more of a balancing act of like, okay, this is not the actual, you know, 70s and 80s music. It sounds like it is very updated for the, you know, 2003 generation, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, to me at a certain point, it's just like, I mean, we near sleeping aids, but it's just certain bands, like whether it's retro or whether it's not retro or whatever the style is, like certain bands just like, they just have songs, you know what I mean? And you can't argue with the songs, you know, like they just write, But, I, but this is good pop songwriting, you know, you can't argue with that. Exactly. But I would, if like you said earlier... If you said this came out in the seventies, I would I would believe it. I wouldn't mm-hmm. I wouldn't have known otherwise if someone said this was a this is a remastered band from Chicago, like this power pop band. I would say, whoa, yeah, this is great. So I think they stay yeah. true to that sound. <clears throat> Definitely, yeah. It's, it's always interesting to me bands that because retro can be a real downer for me sometimes you sure. know when it feels like it's kind of like cosplay dress up kind of stuff yeah but yeah when a band can every once in a while there's a band that just it's like they're almost not like it's not retro it just feels like they're like channeling something that should have existed but just didn't exist back then you know or something and I, I don't you know certain bands can do that and i don't know what makes them special you know because like as you know like power pops are real like it can be hit you know there's a fine line on power pop from being like super great to being kind of like corny. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I never know what that line is, but I always know the bands that are like on the good side of that. Yeah. It's funny you said the Strokes. I can totally hear the Strokes. When did the Strokes come out? Maybe the Strokes were influenced by this. Strokes might have been out just a year or two before this i'm not oh, sure i'll look it up this. okay i mean i think they were kind of already in their like popular phase <laughs> well or at yeah, least kind yeah. of in their like you know formative period or whatever okay yeah they, they formed in 98 it said okay time goes so, by so fast i can't keep track <laughs> yeah and they're, they're they're the modern agp was 001 so they were already kind of a thing by then got it but Julian Casablanca is almost burned me in the face with a cigarette. That was my one claim to fame. <laughs> what? Yeah. So, so this is like, <laughs> there was this English band called Doves. Um, they were kind of cool. They were almost like Pink Floyd, but they were like, had elements of like kind of techno music and stuff. And me and Matt Cotto actually went to, he was a big fan. And uh, we were in the seventh street entry and, uh, you know, sometimes the Midwest, you know, this is, you know, internet was around, but, you know, sometimes we were a little bit, like, behind the hype, right? And Strokes were opening. We had no idea who they were. And, like, so they came on, and we were like, wow, these guys are pretty good, you know? Actually, it was weirdly, which no one says anymore, but I actually thought about the Smiths when I saw them. I was like, oh, they kind of remind me of the Smiths for some reason. 
But um, uh, anyway, they, but they just had this really like attitude. Like I think that maybe in New York or LA and the coast, they were kind of a big deal, and they they were getting sort of just a typical like arms crossed kind of like muted response for a, another band's crowd, and they seemed a little kind of put off by that. But anyway, later on, like Julian was just, I mean, fucking wasted. And there's in the entry, there's sort of like the t-shirt booth is by the bar. And then there's like three steps down to kind of like where the pit is. Mm -hmm. And I was coming up and he was coming down and he, I mean, he had a cigarette and he was just absolutely all over the place, but he tripped and it was almost kind of like in a, (laughs) like a martial arts movie. It was kind of like slow motion. I was like pushing him away and like, he stopped with like his lit end of his cigarette, like just inches away from my face. And I was kind of like pushed him back. He's like, Oh, I'm sorry. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, dude, it's cool. Just move, move along. And so then I, I was like, well, strokes are weird, but I didn't think I'd ever hear about him again. <laughs> Little did you know. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, wow, I saw the strokes in the club opening for a band. But, you know, and I remember thinking they were good, but it's just like you never know. Like without, you know, I don't know, could have, they were good, but I guess I wasn't like, wow, this is like the absolute greatest band I've ever seen or anything. So. So the message is next time a musician almost like physically harms you, just let them do it because the scar yeah. will be worth something in the future. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. Um, let's hear another one. There's so many good songs on this record. Um, Throwaway Style is pretty good. That's a good one. I feel like in the Minneapolis scene, they had such... They had such good bands too coming out of Minneapolis, like the Selby Tigers. I would consider yes, them. Like, yeah. They would have fit I mean, very well with the Exploding Hearts. Yeah. Um, I mean, back then too. I mean, obviously, like the, as far as punk, you know, Dillinger Four. Sure. Um, I don't know. Were you? Did they do well out on the coast at all? Or I, I can never tell. Yeah, they do well everywhere. They're just such okay. Well respected punk band. Yeah. Okay. I, I was. I was. I was hoping they were. It was just like in Minneapolis. It was just like they were like kingpins. You know what I mean? Sure. And they had their own. They had their own club, the Triple Rock Social Club, and you know they were just like. It, yeah, way... I, I did a side project with uh, with Patty played bass. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Patty's Patty's a fun guy, man. <laughs> and a couple of the guys from. Um, oh my gosh! How am I flip, blanking on their name? Um, they're a. Minneapolis duo. They're from Japan originally. Birthday suits. Birthday suits. Oh my god. Hideo. Yeah, Hideo and Matthew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those guys are great. So I went in. I went to Minneapolis and recorded. Uh, we did this hardcore record. And oh wow! It was me, Patty, Hideo, and Matthew. Birthday suits. Unbelievable live band. Yeah, especially they for absolutely. It's ridiculous. Just destroy. Um, who else? Like. Did you know like Blind, Blind Shake, Shake at all? Blind Shake, God. yeah. They recorded the the project for us. The the guitarist, I forgot his name. Jim. Ah, God, it's been so long. But it's yeah. the Blaha brothers. Yeah, um, one of the brothers. They both look. They have shaved heads and they look <laughs> exactly. exactly the same. I was about to say he's got a shaved head. <laughs> they look like they were like mental patients <laughs> out, like uh, like, and they're twins. I mean, they kind of look like twins, even though they're just like brothers. But oh man, that band. Another band, just absolute. I would not want to follow that band ever. I was in a band called Maps in Norway that we were we were only local, but we played one of their you know first couple of shows and stuff. And they, I was just like, I saw them. I was like, oh my god, this band's amazing. Yeah, the Minneapolis scene it just put out so many good bands. 
Who else? Like Soviets were really good. Yeah, they were so short lived, though. It was like they were gone. I was like, oh, what happened? Yeah, there's a um, like you know, a band you should check out. Um, <laughs> we're also inside baseball Minneapolis, but there's a band called um, uh, Green Slash Blue, Green Blue. Okay, and that's I think Hideo and somebody from maybe the Soviets, and it's kind of like this, uh, like sort of super group of like people from that era. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, it's Jim Jim Blaha from um, uh, from Blind Shake. Hideo, um, Annie Sparrows from the Soviets, and then uh, Danny from uh, Selby Tigers. Great. Yeah, no, <laughs> they're good. Fun. They're good. Yeah, yeah, check it out. Um, cool. Well, I think you know we we covered. Uh, I mean, I could kind of just play every song on the Exploding Heart, sure. but I don't. We shouldn't do that. Um, even though they're all like two minutes, which is good. Yeah, I, <laughs> Very, I, I think the bottom line is we're we both love this record uh, mm-hmm. and it's just more than anything. When I hear this album, it also brings a lot of sadness because of the tragedy um, of what could yeah. have been. And just, yeah. they're so young and just to have that taken away. It really, it's really a sad thing. I remember when it happened hearing about it and I, I you know, I, I didn't know them personally, but it was something that was, uh, that affected me. I was like, my gosh, it's terrible. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's again, their age was, I mean, they were so young and it, to me, it's, it's a rare thing. I mean, like it's, it's hard to come out with a first album that just seems so self-assured and so realized. And like, you know, they just were exactly the band they were supposed to be right from the beginning. And like, you know, some bands, like they have a good debut, but maybe take, you know, a couple albums to kind of really get to the point where they're, like what they should be, you know what sure. I mean? And like, they just seem to be like instantly just like born like this perfect kind of like punky kind of raw pop, you know, power pop band. It was, it was pretty impressive. And it's, you know, who, I mean, I'm, I just, I think they probably had so many great songs they would have written, you know, it's really a shame. Yes. Um, agreed. Um, Mike, we, we like to do some uh, listener questions if you have time to stick around for that. Okay. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm unfortunately going to keep you guys right in that sad spot because one of our community questions comes from Braden Summers, who uh, generally asks about how you guys process the deaths of musicians that you listen to. Um, and you know, maybe how that response differs from when you know or when you're notified of uh, the deaths of other artists, you know, in other mediums. Um, Mike, do you have any particular like response to when that happens? You've, you know, see the headlines and do you just listen to a bunch of their music? Do you think back to things? What goes through your head? I think there's a couple of different variables. If if I know the person personally, that it has it hits harder. Like when Kim Shattuck passed away from the Muffs, I was I was shattered. I was I was in tears. I I just couldn't believe it because she, she kept it away from everybody except her very close knit um, circle of friends. So uh, something like that was just um, very very tragic um uh, mm-hmm. bradley from sublime when he passed away we had tour i had toured with sublime in my old band and the fact that he was and i think back to it because he never got to experience their success they became successful after he passed away so while they were doing well and growing but 
nothing he never got to experience the success or the wealth of uh of his music um and but if we're talking about people i don't know like like when bowie died or when prince died obviously you're like especially with prince because he was still young bowie was older but for prince it's like it is shocking you're just like oh uh that's terrible um there's a bit of sadness but at the same time because i don't know him i don't have it doesn't have the same impact yeah i mean obviously being in minneapolis prince's death was a whole different thing here you know what i mean like sure radio stations literally went to like 24 hours a day prince formats like for a few days there was these huge gatherings so like because he was, you know, he, he he always stayed here, you know, as as big as he ever got. Like he was a Minnesota guy, yeah. you know what I mean. And so I think there was just an attachment there that, um, you know, it was just different than even say like Dylan, who's kind of moved around and kind of, you know, he's not super involved in Minnesota, you know, um, or even like Paul Westerberg, people like I mean, he he's kind of left and stuff too. But Prince was always here. I mean, again, Bowie really affected me a lot personally, probably of like, so it's kind of hard with these icons because they seem so far away from you. But um, I'd really like that album, Black Star, that he put out, his last album. I'd been listening to that, actually. It came out the Friday before he died. Um, and I was like, wow, this is like the best thing he's done in years and years. Um, so that um, that kind of hit me. Um, in terms of a smaller band that just was very impactful to me and a very sad thing, um, there was a band called Silkworm, and they were on uh, Matador and then Touch and Go. Uh, they were originally Montana, then they were in Chicago, but uh, <clears throat> they were this small band. You know, they weren't popular, but I think they had like the people that liked them really liked them and loved them. And uh, their drummer Michael Dahlquist was uh, he worked at a microphone factory uh, in Chicago where I think a lot of musicians kind of worked and. Uh, they were at lunch and a woman decided to kill herself by swerving into oncoming traffic and hit their car and killed him and a couple other musicians. And, um, she lived, you know, ironically, but, um, yeah, he was just a really great spirit. And, you know, my band had actually played their last show in Minneapolis, what ended up being their last show, like a couple months before that. And so I'd finally got to meet him and stuff and play a show with him. And I was just like super over the moon about that. So anyway, Michael Dahlquist and Silkworm is a, Band worth checking out if you haven't heard of them. Sure. Uh, well, I'll pull us back up out of the sad place for a second with a very specific question for you, Mike. Um, Chris Paul, uh, a Lawrence Arms fan, wants to know if you are the Mike mentioned at the beginning of their song, Nebraska. Um, the lyrics say, hey, Mike, I wish I could help you figure something out, but it's been too long since we spoke. Um, no. <laughs> it's not about me. It's about their old uh, like road manager, Rody. Ah, okay. Um, then I guess still follow up question. Have you ever been mentioned in a song to your knowledge? Yeah, there's been, I, there's been a couple like punk bands that have like very specifically wrote songs with my name and that's the title. There's like this one weird hmm. experimental band called Narboots. They have a song called Mike Park. There was this old pop punk band from the like late nineties called the timeouts, a song about me. It's called Mike Park. So Mike Lynch uh, says, Mike Park, welcome to Crossfade. And uh, in the 2000s and 2010s, you organized charity tours through Plea for Peace. Um, Mike wants to know if you could talk a little bit about the work for Plea for, excuse me, work of Plea for Peace. And if there are any current nonprofits that you feel could use a signal boost or, uh, you know, particular 
focus right now? Yeah, well, so Plea for Peace was a 501c3 we started here in San Jose. And the goal was basically to start a youth center that was music-based. And it was the outreach was for kids who were into what maybe people deemed as like normal act after school activities like sports. Uh, we wanted kids who were into like the arts, whether it be music, painting, poetry, whatever. Uh, the problem was it's just so expensive here in San Jose. So we actually opened up a youth center in Stockton, which is about hour and a half uh, inland from San Jose, hoping that we could um, like get the city aboard and like really back us. And that didn't happen. <laughs> And so we basically, to make a long story short, we uh, we ran out of money, but we were able to survive five years and felt like we did some good stuff. And wow. Unfortunately, just as I got, I've gotten older and had kids, um, the the foundation has really been stagnant. It's been sabbatical for quite a long time now. Um, I wish I could uh, do some more good things, but a, a, a nonprofit in L.A., and they've actually branched out to other cities now. It's called the Sidewalk Project. And they are run by a, lo- a lot of people in the punk scene. Um, the um, guitarist for Bad Cop, Bad Cop, Stacey D, is one of the uh, main members of this organization. And they just do outreach for the homeless in L.A. And, and, and again, they've um, branched out to a lot more cities, I believe, Las Vegas, um, I believe Oakland now, uh, maybe even Chicago. I, I'd have to look to to confirm exactly where, but uh, mm-hmm. I've been doing – I did some uh, fundraising for them recently, and uh, I'm about to do another fundraiser for them because I just feel like they're doing things for the right reasons. Nice. We'll make sure to leave a link to their uh, project in the show notes. So, listeners, if you're interested in finding out more, you can find it there. Um, let's see. White Mex, uh, one of our Patreon supporters wants to know if there are any, and <laughs> reading this question again, I'm assuming Mike, that there are plenty of these, any songs you've listened to a lot and still don't know the lyrics. That would be uh, every for- song in the history of music. <laughs> <laughs> the only music uh, I can remember the lyrics for are the songs I learned when I was a little kid, like little, like seven, eight, <laughs> like I can if I listen back to like Ario Speedwagon, some of the songs that my <laughs> my sister played while we were driving in the car, I can still remember the lyrics to those, but yeah. nothing else. Maybe some. I think there's maybe a couple Smith songs in high school I I learned, or a Depeche Mode song here or there. Um, mm-hmm. Some Devo, but for the most part, I can't remember songs, <laughs> especially current day, unless I, I studied it. And I've even done songs like. Uh, covers of songs and i'll learn it for the show but then and a couple of years later i'll like i don't remember the lyrics at all <laughs> it's yeah. all muscle memory yeah. uh <laughs> for for white mechs their instance or excuse me their example is uh, they still don't know what the hell busy bone is saying in notorious thugs to this day oh um, yo, bone thugs and harmony were tough yeah uh matt are there any of those for you that you um, could pick up yeah i mean i would say I say I think that I probably think I know lyrics, but then I think, you know, Mike talked about having to come on stage and sing. I think if pressed, I would probably like not actually know them as well as I think I do. Or like yeah. the second and third verses. Um I, I kinda know lyrics person, but it but at the same time, you know, there's there's plenty of like 
I listen. I've been you know last few years I listen to African stuff, which obviously I have no idea. Um, you know, there's a <laughs> there's a band called the Cocteau Twins that were sort of this like new wavy kind of mm-hmm. goth dream pop band that, that you know she, in Las Vegas. Yeah, I mean, but she sang in just you know syllables, like it meant nothing, and I didn't even know that for years. Um, but you know, there's lyrics aren't everything, you know. Yeah, one of our Patreon supporters actually. Oh, I'm forgetting the song now. Funk something funk. That uh, cherry colored funk. Said, yep. Cherry colored funk was uh, another song that they just could not grok the lyrics to, despite listening to it, you know, dozens of times. Because they're not. Um, it's made up. It's like there's nothing. Oh well, that she just sings literally. She sings in nonsense syllables. That feels cheap. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I, but I didn't know that for years. There's also there's a weird <laughs> prog band from France called Magma. And they invented their own language called like Kobayan or something. Come on, no, you check, check out Magma. They're they're like a whole thing. They all wore like identical like turtlenecks, and they had these big gold chains with like the Magma logo. <laughs> they're some, like just Google them. They're they're amazing, incredible. Uh, well, that one's definitely going on the music Matt mentioned on Crossfade playlist, which is Mike. Just for your edification, a separate playlist I had to make because Matt mentioned so many bands that are so obscure that I would it's never a lot of remember bands, man. Yeah, it's a lot of bands. So it's many a lot bands. Of bands. Um. Tommy Carver Chaplin, another Patreon supporter, uh, asked what you guys think of Blink-182's work with Matt Skiba, if you've listened to it. Mike, have you given it an ear? Yeah, Matt's one of my best friends. Um, so, of course, I've, I've listened. I, I've i never been a big fan of Blink in general. Um, mm. My old band, we had the same agent as Blink. So, we brought Blink out on their first out-of-town shows in California. So wow. we played a bunch of shows with them. And I remember telling our agent, I'm like, man, this band sucks. <laughs> you, sh- you should drop them. <laughs> um, thankfully, he didn't listen to my advice because it was enough. He made enough for him to retire off of that band. But um, the stuff that Matt's doing with them, I mean, I like it because I, I just like Matt so much. I want him to do well. And I'm, but it's again, it's so overproduced. It's hard to listen to because I yeah. just listen to. It, I'm going, what is this? This is just like every mm-hmm. note is is going through some kind of filter. Where I'm like, wow, this just sounds so unreal to me. Yeah, you. It kind of makes you wonder what might have happened if Matt Skiba had become part of the group back before they started having that like production horsepower behind their act. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess the way I feel about it, you know, Mike, you know much better, but at a certain point, I mean, Matt Skiba has been around for a long time. He certainly paid his dues. And like, if it's a thing where he he likes those guys, enjoys working with them and, you know, they play big shows and I'm assuming like the the touring accommodations are great and like it's hotels and, you know. Oh, yes. I I mean, big big festivals and it's, it's pretty plush. But, you know, at a certain point, like, that's just got to be fun to do. You know what I mean? Like, just on a personal oh, level, yeah. you know? So, I, I I don't begrudge anyone that does that. You know what I mean? Like, I think, sure. like, why? I mean, I'm sure Matt Skeeb has played literally a thousand shitty shows to, like, five people, you know, in a terrible van. So, like, why not, you know? Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd take it. I'd love to play <laughs> arenas and have a uh, have a tour bus all to myself yeah heck yeah uh our final question comes from tanner hoisington who asks and we sort of touched on this before um about bands uh that split singing duties about equally between or among members 
Um, in the case of, uh, Alkaline Tree, of course, that's, that's Matt and Dan. Um, Tanner tends to prefer Dan songs. I don't know if you have a particular opinion, Matt, or excuse me, Mike, about Alkaline Trio or generally the concept of, you know, multiple members of a band taking lead. Yeah, I love it. I love when there's multi-vocalists. Uh, in terms of a preference between Matt and Dan, I, I really don't. I love both of their songs equally, which might be the politically correct answer. But I, in this <laughs> case, it's I'm being completely honest. We work with another Chicago band in that scene called the Lawrence Arms. With they also split singing duties, yeah. and I like it because it's just their their voices are so different. Especially if the voices are different, I think it's great because it just gives such a more diversity to the the band. Like in extreme mm-hmm. cases, like the B fifty twos, when you take this, oh yeah, basically like the spoken word lead vocalist, and then pair them up with these really great singing. Uh, women who harmonize so well. It just has such a unique sound. For sure. Uh, Matt? Yeah, well, I mean, I I also love it. Um, You know, obviously you have a a Brit pop band called The Beatles that did that pretty well. Yeah, they did Um, pretty well. Yeah, and then, but actually I I think it's some of my favorite bands a little bit more in the the punk zone, like three of my all-time favorite bands ever. Um, one that comes to mind, and this is actually a, a, a death um, being here in, in Minneapolis that um, I think really hit a lot of us hard, too, was Grant, uh, Who's Gerdew, yeah. um, Grant Hart, and, and Bob Mould, the late Grant Hart, who was, uh, I mean, you know, he was around at shows all the time. I spoke to him and just had very weird conversations with a guy, and like he he was just an incredibly different person and, and interesting person, um, Grant Hart, who passed away a couple years ago. Um, another band, uh, obviously Fugazi with Guy and Ian, yeah. um, you know, they complimented each other so well. And it just, to me, like maybe the greatest live band of all time, in my opinion. Um, and then, uh, X, um, the, the LA kind of early punk band with, um, you know, John Doe and Xene Cermenka, um, with, who had the kind of other dynamic of kind of being like a couple and, you know, male, female thing that, and they, their voices just blended super well as, as well. So those are three that kind of come to mind at least when i think of bands that had like sort of two you know very distinctive uh very dominant kind of vocalists you know i grew up in a world of um harmony rather than you know sort of the differentiating voices where it all had to sound like one thing so it's been a fun venture diving into bands that do the opposite um let's see okay then i guess that was our last question and uh one of my favorite crossfade traditions is that we solicit songs from our listeners, um, and then we play one of them on our way out. So while we're talking and, uh, you know, giving us an exit ramp for this episode, we'll play <laughs> Paul Collins' beat, uh, Rock and Roll Girl. <laughs> so was this a, in that group. Was this like a setup, Jason, or was this like, like just random? Chris Paul is a new supporter. Thank you so much, Chris Paul, who suggested this song. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm assuming it's, uh, you know, it came to mind when the, uh, when the exploding hearts okay. were, were mentioned. I, I'd literally just written like the nerves and the beat, like in my show notes on my doc. And then you sent me that. I was like, oh, this is so perfect. You, so you gotta love that synergy. This, uh, yeah. Paul Collins is, you know, Mike mentioned earlier, like just the nerves, uh, his earlier band that they did hanging on the telephone, which Blondie covered to, to good success. But, um, yeah, just a, a great rock and roll songwriter. 
All right, we'll play it on our way out. Uh, and Matt, you can uh, let us know what it, what it's about as we head out. Yeah, absolutely. We thank you for listening as always. If you want to support uh, us and the whole MinMax kind of network, uh, go to patreon.com slash MinMax, M-I-N-N-M-A-X. And, you know, Mike, just thanks so much for doing this. It was super interesting and, and just really enlightening, and, and we appreciate your time so much. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, this was huge. Awesome, man. Well, we will, uh, we will actually, Jason, we will not see you in two weeks, right? We're taking, we have a, we're taking an Short episode off for, for summer, summer break. Yeah. We're, we're playing hooky. So we'll, we'll catch up with you in about a month. Um, but we'll be cooking up some new guests and it should be good. So until then, have a great, you know, enjoy your summer and we'll see you in about a month. Yeah.